Great. Good morning. I'll try that again. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> <Thank> you, <guys. laughs> Have you ever struggled to take hold of something that is rightfully yours? Perhaps you've travelled on a train and you can uh, recognise this situation. You've carefully booked a great seat. First class, forward facing, wind table, right side of the train for the best view, quiet coach. But when you arrive for your seat, somebody else is sitting in it. And they've got their eyes closed and they've got their headphones on and they look pretty comfy. So what do you do? You think, ah, I think it might be easier just to go back into that other carriage. You know, the one where the aircon's broken? And uh, it was, oh, I think there was maybe a stag party. It sounded pretty rowdy. And I'm not sure there were any seats, actually. So maybe I'll just go and sit in between the carriages, you know, like outside the toilets. <laughs> I think that'll be better. Anything but to wake up that person. Anything but to take my seat that's actually my seat. Well, today we're going to hear about a group of women in the book of Joshua who refused to sit back and give up on what was rightfully theirs. They persisted to ensure they took hold of what was promised. They didn't let someone else take their seat. Instead, they claimed it as their own. As we look at their example today, I hope we will be inspired and encouraged to boldly take hold of what is rightfully ours in Christ. So let's start by praying. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you come now? Would you speak to us as we open up your word? Would you reveal what's on your heart for us today? May we learn from you and learn to love you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read Joshua chapter 17, verses 3 to 6. And uh, hopefully you can see it on the screen there. So, now, Zelophehad, son of Hepher, the son of Gilead, the son of Machiah, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters, whose names were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They went to Eleazar, the priest, Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our relatives. So Joshua gave them an inheritance among, along with the brothers of their father, according to the Lord's command. Manasseh's share consisted of ten tracts of land besides Gilead and Bashan east of the Jordan, because the daughters of the tribe of Manasseh received an inheritance among the sons. The land of Gilead belonged to the rest of the descendants of Manasseh. So this might seem a fairly nondescript passage about land allocation, but we're going to see that it's actually a remarkable account of active faith. First, it will help to give some of the wider context. So Moses has led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and then they have failed to enter the promised land due to a corporate lack of faith. So they've wandered the desert for 40 years, and an entire generation has died out. When Moses dies, died, leadership passed to Joshua, and it was Joshua's job to claim the land promised to his fathers. Joshua started 
by leading the Israelites over the River Jordan into the Promised Land. Then they started to conquer the land and to settle in it as their promised inheritance. Where we join, Joshua is allocating land according to tribe, and this happens in chapters 14 to 19 in Joshua. So some of this land has already been conquered, and some of it is in the process of still being conquered. But Joshua is dividing the land and setting boundaries for each of the different tribes, describing where they were settled and call their own. The passage we're looking at today in chapter 17 is one of four passages sometimes known as the land grant narratives. These are distinctive within these chapters in Joshua in that they focus on individuals rather than whole tribes. The other examples are the allocations to Joshua, Caleb, and Caleb's daughter and her husband. So the question is, why are these passages deliberately different and distinctive? Why are these individuals singled out for mention? And what can we learn from that? What do they teach us about our individual role within God's greater unified plan for his family community? Now, you may not have heard of the daughters of Zelophehad before today. I suspect maybe not. But I believe that their example is one we're called to pay attention to. These daughters don't just receive a passing mention. They are named Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, Tirza, not once, but four times in the Bible. The Bible often uses repetition to emphasize a point. It's like using the highlighter pen in the Bible. And these women are named individually four times. As we will discover, they offer to us an example of bold, persistent faith and demonstrate that we too can trust God's promises. Now, to understand the true significance of our passage here in Joshua, we need to go back a bit and look at the backstory, which is in Numbers. So we're going to look at Numbers um, chapter 27 um, and a little bit at chapter 36. And this is before God's people have entered the promised land. So this, where we're at, is they have, as they prepared to cross the Jordan and enter Canaan, Moses and Eleazar the priest took a census to establish the relative size of each of the different tribes um, so that they could each be given an appropriately sized holding when they um, got into Canaan. And it's worth emphasizing that for the Israelites, it was customary that inheritance should pass to sons. A father would provide dowries for his daughters on marriage, but his land and other possessions would be divided among his sons. Women didn't usually have independent standing, but instead came under the headship of their nearest male relative, usually their father or their husband. And at the time of Numbers chapter 27, the five daughters of Zelophehad had neither. They had no father, they had no husbands. So their status was pretty fragile. And yet they boldly spoke up for themselves and for their family, as we shall see. So we're going to read now um, Numbers 27. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hether, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly 
at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, but he died for his own sin and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, What Zelophehad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites, If a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. So slightly later in Numbers chapter 36, a new issue becomes apparent regarding this issue of daughter inheritance. So the family heads of the tribe go back to Moses to ask what will happen if a daughter who has inherited land then marries somebody from a different tribe, because in that case, the land would pass over to her husband's tribe and be lost from the original. The Lord's response is that every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan to ensure that inheritance does not pass from tribe to tribe, but that each tribe keeps the land it inherits. So to summarise, the situation is as follows. The Israelites are poised on the edge of entering the promised land. They're being counted, ready for the distribution of their inheritance, their portion of land. And one family of daughters spots a problem. Their father had no sons, and therefore his name will die out forever unless there is a drastic change in the law to allow them to inherit the portion of land which their family is due. They take their plea to Moses, who in turn takes the plea to God um, and asks for his guidance. God rules in the daughter's favour and makes a permanent law to govern this situation and others like it now and in the future. There's then a further amendment to that law to ensure that land remains within the tribe to which it was originally given, a command and a promise that each tribe is to keep the land it inherits. Fast forward into the book of Joshua, and the Israelites have started taking this land and settling within it in their tribal groups. The daughters stand up once more, and they remind their leaders of the God-given promise that went before. They say, God promised us our inheritance. Now give it to us. So Joshua did. So I'm going to highlight three lessons that the daughter's example teach us. We're going to look at they were bold, they had persistent faith, and they valued their inheritance. So the first point, they were bold. They were bold because they knew God's character. So in Numbers 27, verses 1 and 2, we see they approached the tent of meeting and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders and the whole assembly. And again in Joshua, we see the same thing. They went to Eleazar the priest, Joshua son of Nun, and the leaders. This action must have taken great boldness. They were standing right up in front of their whole community 
They lived in an intensely patriarchal society and their plea and the fact that they were the ones making it ran counter to Israel's culture. They could have received immediate rejection, not been listened to. They might have been refused entry to the tent. What they did was unprecedented. They asked for a radical change in the law to favour women for the sake of their family's name. And they did this in a very public way, in a very public place. They risked rejection, dismissal, ridicule, but instead they acted with boldness. How were they able to act with such boldness? Because they understood the character of God. They approached the tabernacle entrance, which was the place of judgment where the leaders of the assembly met. But more importantly, it was the place where the judge of all the earth stood, God himself. In bringing their request to this place, they weren't just bringing it to their earthly leaders, they were bringing it before God. And we see that Moses consults with God on this important issue, and it's God that decrees the ruling. The daughters trusted God would act justly. They appealed to Yahweh, the God of the fatherless and the widow, the defender of the defenseless. They acted boldly because they trusted God would defend his chosen people's right to their place of inheritance. And they trusted that that meant them, even as women, as well. In this, we see God's heart for his children. Throughout the Bible, we consistently see God choose to include the excluded, to draw in the marginalized, to stand up for those unable to stand up for themselves. He is the God of the downtrodden. The daughters of Zelophehad knew this, and they staked their claim boldly, relying on God's character. And they were correct to do so. I love verse 7, because in, um, in chapter 27, because the Lord says to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. And it's very simple, it's very clear. God rules in their favour. But let's not fall into the trap of thinking that the daughters somehow pointed out to God something that he had missed, some kind of point that he had kind of overlooked, a problem he had not thought about. No, God always knew that what the daughters were saying was right. He didn't suddenly realise he had made a mistake and needed to rectify it. He used this opportunity and the boldness of these women to make a critical law for the people of Israel. He designed this situation to demonstrate his heart for his people, all of his people. So this law wasn't a mistake or an afterthought. This law was always intended by God. The daughters were rewarded for their boldness. Their appeal resulted in justice for them and a place for their family in the promised land. In fact, they didn't just receive their portion, they received a generous portion. All five of them received an allocation rather than just the one allocation that would have been due to their father. So their boldness was rewarded with God's generosity. The ruling also had eternal significance. A permanent law was made to protect others in a similar situation in the future. The daughter's individual actions had a long-lasting impact on their community and on our community too. There is a deeper spiritual significance of this issue 
because it speaks of the kingdom of God. Canaan was the promised land. It wasn't just a place to live. Historically, it was the kingdom of God on earth, the only place on earth where God dwelled. To be excluded from that place was to be excluded from God's fellowship. So this example of inclusion, God demonstrates that his kingdom is for all. Even for those who might be considered marginalized or who might exclude themselves based on some other factor. The promised land is for men and women. The kingdom of God is for men and women. In the light of the New Testament and the work of Jesus on the earth, we know that this kingdom is extended to all. Galatians 3, 26 to 29 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We all have a place in the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. If you haven't yet taken hold of your place in the kingdom, you can do so today. There are no exclusions, just one inclusion, faith in Jesus. So let's look at our second point. They were full of persistent faith because they trusted in the covenant-keeping God. When the daughters first presented this plea um, to Moses, the Israelites had not yet crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. And yet they requested land as their inheritance, as if the taking of the land was already a done deal. In this, they demonstrated incredible faith. A few decades before, their father's generation had completely failed to enter the promised land through a corporate lack of faith. And yet now these daughters stand before the entire assembly and confidently ask for their share of the as yet unconquered land. They don't ask with a, if this happens, then please this. They ask for their inheritance as if it's already before them. And this must have served as a great encouragement for all those gathered. The daughter's faith in God's word was an example to all. The daughters believed in the power and the promise of God's word. They believed that what, that what God said would happen would happen. They believed that God would enable the Israelites to conquer the land. And this must have encouraged all who listened on to also believe that God would be true to his word. The daughters chose to remember God's previous deeds. They chose to remember his promises and they believed he would keep his word because he'd proved himself faithful in the past. In our passage that we read in Joshua, the daughters are bold again, demonstrating their ongoing persistent faith in the promise. Once more, they stand before the leaders and the assembly and they say, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance. They knew the promise, they believed it, and so they boldly took hold of it. They were persistent. They, they didn't let it go. They had faithfully fought for their right to an inheritance. And they weren't going to let it be forgotten or overlooked. So 
So our third point is that they valued their inheritance because they knew what it was worth. So the daughters fought boldly for their inheritance, as we've heard, because they understood its value. They understood the blessing that God wanted to bestow upon his people. They valued the need to be counted as the people of God and to have an eternal place in his kingdom. They were seeking first the kingdom of God. They demonstrated how much they valued their inheritance in their obedience. In the later section in Numbers chapter 36, um, we see this new problem, the potential transfer of land um, if daughters who've inherited marry outside their tribe. And God's solution is that the daughters must marry within their tribe. And we see in verses 10 to 12 in this chapter that the, the daughter's response is very clear. It says, so Zelophehad's daughters did as the Lord commanded Moses. And we read that they married their cousins so that their inheritance remained within their father's clan and tribe. Their obedience was certain and swift. There was no debate or hesitancy. The daughters were fully obedient in order to keep their inheritance because they understood just how important their inheritance was. Like the daughters, we have an inheritance that is worth fighting for. It is an inheritance of infinite value and worth. It is an internal inheritance with Christ. God's promises of inheritance were never meant just for Israel alone. Instead, through Israel, God planned to bring all nations to himself. And he's done this through the life and death of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, all believers are children of Abraham by faith, as we just heard in the verse earlier, and belong to the family of God. All believers, regardless of bloodline, are heirs to the promise. Through the gospel, we are heirs with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus, as we read in Ephesians 3, 6. We share Christ's inheritance. We are co-heirs of the kingdom of God. Our salvation means eternal life with Christ in heaven. It is an inheritance that can never perish, never fade, never spoil or fade, as we read in 1 Peter. And we have the Holy Spirit as our guarantee. We read this in Romans 8, verse 15 to 18. We read that we have a spirit of sonship, not of fear. A spirit that enables us to cry, Abba, Father. A spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God and therefore heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What a wonderful inheritance we have. Let's value it. So having looked at the example given by the daughters of Zelophehad, how should we respond? Well, we need to be full of faith, we need to be bold, and we need to be obedient. So, we need to be full of faith. The daughters had strong faith in the promises of God. We need to copy their example and also have faith in the promises of God. But how how do we do this? 
First, we need to know the promises in order to be able to have faith that God will fulfill them. And we need to study God's word to hear what he has promised us. The Bible is rich with his promises. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is our ultimate promise, our promise of salvation, of eternal life. If you're not yet a Christian, you can take hold of this promise today. This verse tells us whoever believes in him. This invitation is to all, and that includes you. John 10 verse 9, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And then in verse 10 promises, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus offers us true life, both here on earth and for eternity in heaven. He invites us to enjoy life to the full in him, a life full of joy, peace, love, hope. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Are you anxious today? Well, this promise is for you. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, present your troubles to Jesus. He will carry them for you. Cast your cares on him. He will give you rest. And allow the peace of God to fill you and guard your heart and your mind. Second, we need to remind ourselves of the truth of God's faithfulness by looking at past examples. And we do this by looking at the Bible and also by looking at our own lives. The daughters of Zelophehad knew what had gone before. They had a clear understanding of what desert life had been like for the Israelites, and they understood the sin of their father's generation. But they also knew that God had been faithful to rescue the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. They had faith because they knew their history. They knew that God had fulfilled promises in the past, and so they trusted that he would do it again. And we see example after example of God's faithfulness in the Bible. And I'm sure if you're a Christian here today, you can think of situations in your own life that you can point to and say, God is faithful. And it may be helpful, if you don't already do it, to keep a notebook or a journal, somewhere that you can write down examples of times in your life where God proves himself to be faithful. Because this can act as a great encouragement, because you can remind yourself of God's faithfulness in the details of your own life. Reminders of past promises fulfilled can give us fresh faith for the challenge that we're facing today. Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All of God's promises will be fulfilled. They are all yes in Christ. This is a truth we can believe in and hold on to. So do you need to learn or remind yourself of the promises of God? What promises are you struggling to believe God for? Today, do you need God to give you a fresh gift of faith 
to believe what he has promised you. Next, we need to be bold. Once we know the promises, we need to be bold in taking hold of them and claiming them. Just as the Israelites needed to take action to physically claim the land that God had promised them, it's the same for us and the promises of God. For Christians, the promise of victory over sin and death has already been accomplished through Christ and his death on the cross. However, this victory must be claimed, taken hold of through a life of faith in Christ's work and of faithfulness to him. Receiving our inheritance, receiving the promises of God, is an active, not a passive thing. God is the giver. It's his gift to give. But we have to actively take hold of it in order to receive it. It's offered to us, and we have to reach to accept. The inheritance of the promised land was the same. God had given it to the Israelites, but they had to physically participate in the active taking of the land. And they didn't always get it right. For example, they failed to tr- when they failed to trust God for the victory or where there was disobedience within the community. Also, the conquering of the land took some time. It wasn't conquered in its entirety all at once. Some of the land allocations were granted prospectively. So it was allocated to a tribe and then they had to still go forward and subdue it before they could take it as their own. There was a promise and then there was a taking hold of that promise. And as we've seen, the daughters of Zelophehad had demonstrated this taking hold of a promise when they went to Joshua to claim their inheritance and they didn't let it go and they didn't wait for it to be given. They didn't risk being overlooked. They boldly stood up for it and said, come on, this needs to be fulfilled. We need to boldly take hold of the promises that we have been given. We need to know God's word. We need to choose to believe it. And then we need to put it into practice. 1 Timothy 6, 12 says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And the verses that follow tell us that we do this by doing good, by being rich in good deeds, by being generous and willing to share. In this way, we lay up treasure for the coming age so that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. When we take hold of the promise of eternal life, we claim its benefits in greater fullness. We are called to live life to the full. Jesus invites us to a better life with him, and he offers all that we need to do this. Often we are too timid to take hold of the provisions that God offers. But as it is our almighty God who is offering everything we need, Surely we should grab hold of it with both hands. We're encouraged in Hebrews 4 to hold firmly to the faith we profess. Because it's Jesus who is our high priest. Jesus who was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. He is our high priest. So therefore let's confidently draw near to the throne of grace to receive help in our time of need. We can do this confidently. And so we need to. That's what's on offer for us. So we need to possess our inheritance. We need to step forward and claim the ground. And this will take boldness. God commanded Joshua to be strong and courageous. 
be strong and very courageous. And we need to be the same. Our battles are different. They're spiritual rather than physical, but they're still very real. And we need boldness to overcome, to fight, to take the ground, to win the victory. And we need to use the weapons that God has given us to do this. We need to put on the full armour of God. And when we have done this, we will be strong in the Lord and able to stand firm. In what areas of your life do you need to be bold in taking hold of what God has promised? Perhaps you're at a crossroads, not sure of the path ahead. Or Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in, on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You can trust God to show you the way. Perhaps you have an area of sin and temptation that is proving a real struggle. Well, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 promises, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. You need to ask God for that way out because he's promised he will provide it. Maybe today you're worried about physical provisions. Matthew 6 tells us, do not worry about food or clothes. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need, and he will provide them for us. So finally, we need to be obedient. We take hold of God's promises by being obedient to his commands. The daughters were obedient to God's command to marry within their tribe to ensure their inheritance remained with them. They were obedient in order to remain in the blessing. So it is with us. We find freedom and blessing through our obedience to God. And we are obedient because we value our inheritance. We're not obedient out of some sort of obligation, but instead because we want to be obedient because we love the one that we're being obedient to. We want to be obedient because we want to inherit all that God has promised because we believe it to be good, very good. I suspect sometimes the reason we struggle in our obedience to God, our obedience to turn away from sin, to turn towards him, our struggle to stand up for what we know is right, is that we haven't fully grasped just how valuable our promised inheritance is. We don't have enough faith in the promise and we don't see our inheritance in Christ for its true worth. Well, if this is the case, we need to get back to our Bibles. We need to stir our faith by reminding ourselves of the promises and of God's faithfulness to fulfill those promises. And that will stir our desire for obedience. And we need to do this in community. We're commanded in Hebrews 11 to not give up meeting together and instead to spur one another on to good work, love and good deeds. Our church community is key in helping us as individuals live the lives that Jesus has called us to. But there's also an eternal significance in the church. We are the people of God, his chosen people. And through his church, he demonstrates his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. We live the lives Christ calls us to in and through the community of the church. And it's vital that we all play our part. 
We all have a role to play in this community so that through it, we can reach the world with the gospel and claim the inheritance that is ours in Christ. So perhaps today you're wondering about this promise of eternal inheritance, the promise of eternal life with God. Perhaps you're not certain that this promise is for you. Perhaps you've never actively chosen to receive the gift of eternal life that God is offering. Well, the first step of obedience in the life of a Christian is to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. It is to acknowledge Jesus with your lips and to accept him in your heart, to believe Jesus is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for your sins. And then the next step of obedience is to follow him, to choose to turn away from sin and instead follow Jesus, to trust him. If this is you, you've got an opportunity today to take this first step of obedience, to choose to believe God and his promises and to accept the gift of eternal life. And we'd love to pray with you after the service if this is you today. So in summary, the daughters showed us that they were bold because they knew God's character. They were full of persistent faith because they trusted in the covenant-keeping God and they valued their inheritance because they knew what it was worth. How much more should we value our inheritance and respond by being full of faith and boldness to take hold of all the promises we have been given?